This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman. Thank you all for listening. Today, we will be talking to Eva Van Ruckel about her new book, Phenomenal Justice, Violence and Morality in Argentina, published in January of this year by Rutgers University Press for its Genocide, Political Violence and Human Rights series. Eva Van Ruckel, welcome to the show. Eva, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, where you were born, where you went to school, uh, and did you have a mentor? Uh, hi, Jeff. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. Where I was born, um, I come from the Netherlands, and I was born in the south in a, in a middle-sized town where I went to high school. And uh, when I was 15, I uh, did an exchange here to uh, Venezuela. And um, I can say that became kind of a life-changing experience. <laughs> 20 years later, I can say that, I think. And um, after that exchange year, I started uh, living in between the Netherlands and, uh, and Venezuela, where I also started studying at the university when I graduated uh, high school in the Netherlands first. And while studying... Uh, the strikes against the Chavez, yeah, the Chavez government in the early 2000s were kind of like impeding me to continue. So then I decided to, to return to the Netherlands and take up uh, language and cultural studies in the Utrecht University, but did all my internships and, and research in Venezuela. And uh, this is how I kind of got more and more involved into Latin American studies, which I also decided to do for a master's. And there I came, like, really uh, involved in anthropology and violence because of the Department of uh, Cultural Anthropology at Utrecht University is very much, back then, was very much focused on Latin America and violence. And a mentor, I didn't really have a mentor. I think uh, all staff at, uh, at the anthropology department were really, really inspiring people. I think for the first time I was not a student number and the people in Latin America were not just far away communities, but like real people. And, uh, well, one of them was Antonius Robben. I think, uh, well, in genocide studies, he's a quite well-known anthropologist. And he also became my uh, PhD supervisor later. And I remember it was 15 years ago, taking one of his courses, and that was Culture, Violence, Trauma, and Reconciliation. And it was really like, well, entering a new world. It was really fascinating. That's, that's really interesting. Uh, can you, I, I, I'm curious about this uh, exchange program, just briefly. 
Uh, is that is that typical for students in the Netherlands? Because it's not something I'm you know sort of familiar with here growing in the high school in the United States. No, it wasn't really familiar. I, I, I did know one girl who on the same age she went to Japan and then I got acquainted with the program and my parents too. So we also had some exchange students in our house when I was younger. And one of them, just a year before I went to Venezuela, she was a girl from Venezuela. And that was like, I always wanted to go to Latin America. And then I was like, kind of impulsively, I said, no, I'll go to Venezuela then. And uh, well, then it happened. In fact, then it wasn't such a... I remember saying it to one of my peers in class and she said, Venezuela, Venezuela, is that somewhere in Africa? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it wasn't really on... Uh, it wasn't really a well-known country. And also back then it was quite different from how it is today, of course. So that already addresses some of my... Uh question about Latin America and your interest in anthropology. So uh, maybe you could tell us what led you to do research on Argentina from you know, Venezuela to Argentina. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, as I said, during my bachelor's and my master's, I did a lot of research on the political conflict in, in, in Venezuela and on issues on poverty and, and criminal violence, which was also partially well induced by, by what was happening at the department, of course. And when I graduated, I uh, I really like it at the university, but I have this kind of a love-hate relationship with academia. <laughs> so I thought, no, I need to get out of the university. I need to work. I need to do other stuff. And I started with a documentary project also in Venezuela, and I started working on an NGO in the Netherlands. But then after a year or so, I was like, no, I want to go back and do more field work and write and, and read more. And I was very lucky. Um, but at that moment, when I was kind of like thinking about it and contemplating on returning to the university, that they opened a vacancy, a PhD uh, yeah, uh, project for four years uh, at my previous department under the guidance of uh, Tonius Robin on the trials for crimes against humanity in Argentina. It was a kind of like, wow, yeah, this is what I really want. And I hadn't really been to Argentina. Well, I only had been to Argentina for like two weeks. In between my master's fieldwork, some of my peers were uh, doing fieldwork in Buenos Aires and I visited them, but that was all. So it was, uh, on the one hand, a kind of a continuation of my, my topic of interest and still in the Latin American country. But, but yeah, Argentina, Venezuela, it's, it's a different world, of course. So, uh, yeah, it was really uh, starting off anew. It was a great, great experience. Yeah. Great. Uh, I mean, you mentioned now uh, the crimes against humanity in Argentina. For our audience, before we get into the specifics of your book, uh, could you tell them a little bit about this period between 1976 and 1983 in Argentina? Yes, I can. Yeah, I think like uh, in whole Latin American countries, uh, the 70s were quite turbulent times. Uh, we were in the midst of the Cold War. And in Latin America, there were many uh, left-wing guerrilla groups trying to take over long-seated conservative uh, and sometimes also very authoritarian regimes. Argentina was not really an exception in that sense. Um, but to like zoom in a little bit more in the mid-70s, in 1976, the then now late president, Isabel Perón, uh, who was uh, the wife of the previous president, Juan Perón, she had assumed power after he deceased, and the situation became very, very unstable, uh, instable. Sorry, and uh, the amount of assaults and kidnappings of elites, and then as a response, paramilitary groups, groups under the AAA, were yeah, 
also already killing and disappearing left-wing opponents, was kind of this state of emergency that uh, within the government and, well, elite groups in society, they really urged for an interference of the military. And then on March 24, 1976, well, the notorious uh, military junta came to power. And then the killings and the disappearings that were already uh, happening by these paramilitary groups became more institutionalized within the armed forces. And, uh, well, the junta started to systematically kidnap, torture, kill, and disappear thousands of Argentinians. And that were, on the one hand, armed guerrilla members, but also human rights lawyers, teachers at the university, union members, anyone, as I also write, could be chupado, sucked up by the regime. And I think when we think of Argentina and that period, there are like two particular, well, despite the amount of the enormous amount of disappearances, it's also uh, the practice of uh, the death flights, vuelos de la muerte, that they pulled people drugged but still alive out of the airplanes above the South Atlantic. And uh, also the appropriation of children that were born in illegal detention centers because they're. Uh, well, the pregnant uh, women were also being kidnapped and tortured and after giving birth to these children were well, appropriated. From a military perspective, they would say they were adopted. <laughs> um, and until today, many of them uh, still have a different identity. So uh, these two crimes are particularly well notorious in the context of Argentina. But again, and I think I also, I hope I do that in the book, this is a very contested history. Um, some people say it was from the very beginning very systematic. Other voices say, you know, it was complete chaos. It was out of control. And there were some cells just within the armed forces doing whatever they wanted. Um, and I think also talking with different uh, uh, groups from victims and <clears throat> that kind of like comprises relatives and survivors and people loyal to to them and the perpetrators yeah it reveals very different perspectives and uh, that also made it very difficult to write uh, one like one fixed history of the violence so i decided not to do so either in the book instead of focusing on a history of violence i i opted for looking at time and different experiences and understandings of time kind of like get away from okay this is what happened because I understood while being there, it's not clear what happened. It's so tied to moral judgments and particular experiences tied to, well, ideologies that, yeah, you cannot really untie that from, well, that's my perspective. Perhaps an historian would say otherwise. Yeah. That also <laughs> connects to the questions of what is, what is justice under these circumstances and the crimes that were committed and the different experiences of, of different people. Um, you know, what is what is phenomenal justice and how is it all like how is it different than our maybe our typical understandings of what transitional justice is yeah I, I struggled very much with transitional justice from the start first of all I'm, I'm 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 not a legal scholar and I suddenly was like exposed to this literature uh, quite difficult I remember going court for the first time uh, i live in the netherlands so i thought if i'm going to study the trials for crimes against humanity i've in my life i've ever been to a courthouse so i went uh, for an afternoon to uh, the international criminal court in the hague just to see what it is about and i was like oh what i'm going to do as an anthropologist <laughs> it's going to be hard and 
when I went to Argentina, I think when I started reading all these, yeah, uh, files, I was like, oh, it's going to be now. This is not the way I should I should go. I think <laughs> I need to come up with something different. But now coming to to phenomenal justice, first of all, it's it's not a new concept. Um, like something what we now see in transitional justice, the whole notion of post transitional justice to make kind of like sense of all these practices of truth and justice and memory so long after the violence has ceased. I this is not what phenomenal justice is. It's rather um, it's rather an approach, a way of looking at at these practices that uh, blend existential anthropology, also called phenomenological anthropology, and this is where the phenomenal part of the title comes from. And that really focuses on the lived experience of the phenomenon under study. And I combine this with a field in anthropology called the anthropology of emotion. And what how I see it both share, uh, even within anthropology, a very deep concern for person-centered narratives and the, the very intersubjective dimension of life and research. And it employs, uh, I call it kind of a radical reflexive stance, which means that that also the experiences of the ethnographer are very important to understand what you're trying to study. And I think this combination of, well, this really person-centered approach, this focus on the intersubjective dimension of the field and your own, yeah, part in it and and reflect upon that, I think that that really varies from transitional justice, which I think still tries to capture all these practices in kind of like comprehensive models and categories and then focus less on the messiness, I think. Of the people that are really part and partial of these uh, these practices, and then I also include the ethnographer. And um, so, yeah, it's also a little bit of a perhaps an anthropological critique against new concepts, perhaps, and thinking that we can uh, like just think that oh, let's introduce a new concept, and then then the world again is neat and and comprehensible. I think uh, our concepts are always too too shallow and too. too temporary to really make sense of what's going on out there yeah. <laughs> um so you know with the you, you sort of sort of allude to this already but um why are feelings and emotion important and um how might one i don't know if you have um received any critique of you know emphasizing feeling and emotion but why might one criticize or critique uh you know such an emphasis yeah yeah that's a good point. I also write a little bit about it because I think it's 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 good to take into account when you take a feelings perspective. But first, why I, I I ended up focusing on the feeling, and it was really what happened in my first encounter with a sentence at one of the courthouses, the federal courts in in Argentina. I went in two thousand and nine for a first field trip, two months, and. Yeah, I was lucky. <laughs> Sounds a bit strange, but in these eight weeks, there was also already a sentence that I could, uh, uh, well, participate in. And it was such an emotionally dense and intriguing event um, that it really had to, had to become my point of departure. I was like, this is what I want to study. And um, I write about that also in the prologue of the book. And particularly the difference in, in emotional repertoires between, on the one hand, the perpetrators and their relatives, and people loyal to them, and on the other side, the victims and their relatives. It was so, in my opinion, striking that I wanna, yeah, really wanted to focus on that. And this focus on feelings also pushed me in the direction of existential anthropology to be able to kind of like analyze it 
as a lived experience without turning all these emotions into kind of a neat model like the military they do this and that and how they feel and uh, the victims do this and that so it was kind of like this on the one end the field pushing me towards feelings and to be able to be faithful to that messiness of the feelings I turned to existential anthropology one of the critiques which is focusing on these kind of more experiences and not so much on underlying structures perhaps can avoid a kind of two yeah, they call it navel gazing, or you're kind of missing out on very important, well, power inequalities, uh, the structural inequalities of impunity, for example. But I think by listening to these critiques during paper presentations and in my conversations with my supervisor, but also with people in the field, well, I think I managed to kind of like incorporate, on the one hand, these feelings in all their messiness together with, well, mentioning and, and, and attention to these structural inequalities that are part of yeah, how these trials are taking shape. So, and I think both are co-constitutive to effective life practice. So, um, yes, there is critique, but on the other hand, I think we always have to take one focus. Unfortunately, we cannot. Yeah, I would love to, but <laughs> really have to like focus on something. And to me, it was really the field that pushed me towards uh, this well focus. On, on the emotional dimension. Yeah. I think in, you know, that connects to also uh, the significance of trauma and memory. Um, you know, I'm curious, what are the significances that you found of trauma and memory in Argentina, uh, both in connection with dealing with the crimes committed and uh, the justice proceedings that you witnessed? Mm-hmm. Well, I think in the case of Argentina, trauma and memory, they're kind of essential local notions to understand what justice is particularly in regard to the military dictatorship, but more in general to, to ongoing injustices and impunity. Um, and I have to be careful now, Brad, without undoing the legal and political and symbolic significance of, of this fight against uh, impunity after these horrible crimes. I, I also came to understand that the trials were kind of a continuation of a shared therapy already lasts for more than 40 years and that makes people in Argentina a form, yeah, moral beings, I would say. So I think if you kind of overlook how they define and understand the power of trauma and how they conceptualize memory, I think you're kind of missing out on something very important what's going on in the trial. So it was really also about really, yeah, giving voice to these traumas and these ever-changing memories which is what I try to explain is is an ongoing, never-ending process, and um, the courthouse is another field, a very important one because of its, well, of course, its 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 legal uh, presence. But um, we should not mistake it for something that is separated from these yet ongoing struggles in other social fields in Argentina. So, um, yeah, I think if you and I'm not really sure, but um, Argentina has been taken as kind of an example often in, in literature on transitional justice. They call it uh, a justice cascade or trigger for all these truths and, and, and justice practices. And you see also this focus on trauma and memory elsewhere. But I'm not sure if the, the meanings and understandings of these... Um, 
of trauma and memory in other contexts are similar to the context of Argentina. I think there is a very particular local twist to it, which is very important to, to take into account. And I write also about this um, in terms on the presence of psychoanalysis, um, particularly in the urban areas in Argentina, psychoanalysis is very important. Yeah. Meaning-making framework, um, how people understand what suffering is, but also how the self is, is made up. And this focus on trauma and memory within uh, the truth and justice practices have direct links to this psychoanalytical understanding of self. Um, and I think anthropology is, is, is very well equipped to embrace also and look upon these, perhaps at first sight, not so important uh, or not so significant dealings for legal proceedings, which I do think are very important to take into account. Um, and also it, how, how can I not extend for hours, but these understandings of, of self and trauma even mold the way legal justice is being uh, performed in the courthouses because I can remember talking to judges which have also been exposed to these psychoanalytical understandings of, of what it means to live with trauma that one of them I remember said no no uh, the very practice of, of, of catharsis he even used that word is is essential to to to, to the process of justice um, and you could see that also in, in the makeup of the trials sometimes it were hours and hours uh, victims talking about what had happened to them or to uh, people who disappeared uh, or relatives that disappeared. Um, sometimes I I remember sitting at court like really doubting the judicial relevance of all this. And I remember even talking to, I think it was a lawyer from the United States and he was also interested in the trials. And I once like whispered that, about why is this relevant? He says, no, this has no legal value. So, yeah, something else was going on there. And, and uh, well, I think it's important to, to, to include that in our analysis. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. I mean, in a way that the testimonies sort of bridge that divide between, um, you know, sharing feeling and emotion and participating in the uh, more you know, procedural transitional justice mechanisms. Um, so you kind of started to address uh, the role of testimony in the proceedings and how uh, some of the people who spoke were able to speak extensively about their experience. Uh, you described a number of these testimonies in your book. Is there any one that stood out to you? Yeah. Oh, there were so many that, that kind of like grabbed me um, and kept me like, like thinking about it for, for days, sometimes even often years. And I think one was really a remarkable, I remember, was a woman who had been in one of the largest detention centers in Buenos Aires, the ESMA, uh, for quite a long period, like almost two years. And um, she talked for more than four hours straight. Uh, there was no interruption and there was no recess. She just talked and talked and talked. And it, it was kind of like this vivid 
descriptions about what was going on. And what really struck me was like the kind of like horrific mundaneness of how she spoke about it and how her everyday life was within uh, this, uh, well, this illegal detention center. And another, there were like two testimonies, and I write about that too. There were two girls, uh, both of them had disappeared parents, and they testified about, uh, well, the experience of um, not being around their parents, first not knowing where they were because they were being kidnapped, and later on, well, assumingly being killed, but still not knowing uh, and not being able to properly mourn about that loss. And it was, they were both in their late 20s, early 30s, I guess, and they had the same experience and they were right after one another they were part of the same uh, trial and these testimonies were so different <laughs> that I really I remember sitting there of course like oh how am I going to like it's impossible to generalize this I, I really should put focus on the on, on, on the idiosyncrasies of, of these testimonies and the experiences of people I cannot just say okay for children it means this and that and uh, for the relatives this and that it, it, it would not make sense so these were kind of like yeah, moments that, that, that really pushed me again towards this more yeah, focus on person-centered approach and not trying to generalize based on one or two experiences. Yeah. And yeah, it's also awkward because when the perpetrator spoke, it was not called testimony. These were declarations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I remember having a conversation about this with colleagues in Utrecht studying uh, the Holocaust, and they were talking about perpetrators' testimony. He said, no, 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 these are not testimonies. <laughs> these are declarations about you know, something different. And that's also interesting how you see how these these, these terms also become kind of like co-opted by, particularly Argentina, by, by victims. This is their domain. The testimony is theirs. And, and the declarations of, of the perpetrators, they were very detached. Well, kind of like war stories about how they uh, had to like yeah move their troops and and I remember it didn't really touch me in the same way as as the testimony because but it, it intrigued me and it really yeah gave me the impetus to to look into that part of of, 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 of the transitional of the trial as well so what is it that these men are trying to uphold here or is this really how they envision or understand the world is it only strategy or, or what's going on there so yeah, I think there was again a striking difference in how they performed. Yeah, between these four walls. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about your interactions with Argentinians. But before we get to that, sticking with the court, after describing a day in court and a partial exodus of viewers of the proceedings from the public gallery, you wrote, "Quote: That day, I learned that presence and absence in the public gallery were embodied acts of solidarity and dissent among the victims." Attending court sessions on the one hand involved reciprocal exchanges between victims and on the other hand embodied expressions of dissent against the military officers. In a way, this excerpt encouraged me to think about the various tensions present in informal and formal justice proceedings. Can you tell us what you observed about these tensions from that between victims and survivors and the military officers and the military officers and the victims and survivors and both groups as the act and the actual proceedings? Well, I think first it's it's um, the formal and informal always fused uh, within the trials proceedings. Um, perhaps on paper you only had the, the formal part that was being reflected, and I think also many anthropologists before me have always said it's, it's it's perhaps a bit too reductionist to base 
an experience of justice only on, on, on what's on paper. Um, and I think particularly by being there at court, you can really see how these informal and informal yeah, justice experience fuse. And what, for example, um, what's causing mostly tensions, I think, is also uh, the different expectations and outcomes of, of formal and informal justice present in the trial. Um, just imagine that for 40 years you have waited for this moment to sit in court and to be able to tell your story of survival or the testimony of having a disappeared relative. And you know that the person who has been actually involved in that crime will be present in the courtroom that day. That's a very important moment, also a very anxious moment. Many of the victims have also been, well, uh, preparing themselves weeks, sometimes months, sometimes. And then when the, the moment is there, you're sitting in the courtroom and the person is falling asleep, for example. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's not really, um, it doesn't really matter for the outcome, perhaps for the official outcome of, uh, of the court proceedings. But for that particular person, seeing that person falling asleep while you're telling well, the most important story of your life. It's 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 very yeah offensive and yeah. Then then what? You cannot. I think you should not uh, erase that part of, of of the justice experience. Although on paper it doesn't really matter. And on the other side, if you flip it, uh, as I already said, testimony sometimes were very long, sometimes four or five hours. It was really giving victims. Uh, so that means relatives and and survivors. Uh, the opportunity to talk and to verbalize uh, what has happened to them and what is still so yeah, so present in their lives. Um, and as I said, sometimes the legal value of these testimonies were not that clear. So it was also sometimes having 20, 30 people of the court uh, courthouse present and just yeah, listening to these stories, which was not really perhaps that important for getting yeah, getting to a verdict. But on the other side, if I talked with the military and their relatives about that, it was a thorn in the eye for them to have, yeah, to have them listen hours and hours about these experiences. So then you see that the informal, yeah, it, it is allowed within the formal setting. It's also kind of changing what formal justice is. Uh, but it also causes different expectations uh, and outcomes and that can clash. And I think we should, yeah, pay attention to these tensions, I guess, because, um, yeah, I think only a verdict is, 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 not, is not the whole part of what it means for people to get justice done for crimes against humanity. So, yeah, that's also a reason why I, I decided not to focus or kind of divide the formal and the informal. At the beginning, I... I kind of played with the idea, as many people do, to kind of see it as a ritual and see it as a theater play, as a performance. And, and then I thought, well, of course, there are very, more, very much ritualized behaviors in the courtroom, but also the, when the moment was off, it was also it was very much infused with the performance. So I decided, no, I'm not going to juxtapose the formal and the informal. I'm just going to see it as a total, yeah, total fact, let's say, as, as uh, Irvin Goffman also says. And this gets at, you know, the, the impact on the justice proceedings on the individual uh, and group experiences of the, 
of those who are survivors or had family members that were disappeared. Um, you know, you, you began to, or you already alluded to this a little bit, but, you know, rarely do survivors of crimes against humanity have the undivided attention, assuming they stay awake, of the individuals and the institutions that committed the crimes against them and their families. Uh, were you given any sense that the overflowing feelings and emotions that were expressed to you and during the trials grew out of this opportunity to finally, uh, you know, have the quote unquote, they're finally have the day in court? Yes, I do think that 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 that's these few square meters where they could finally tell their 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 experiences. I kind of yes, I think it it, it is a heightened uh, emotional uh, experience. I think um, which is also so contradictory because the law what it tries to do is contain that emotion, or at least that's what we think, right? Um, but I also felt in that sense, this whole idea that, 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 that law kind of tries to like keep emotions out of the courtroom. I felt it was very different in Argentina in that sense. And I also remember when uh, a colleague, uh, Alexander Hinton, also an anthropologist, yeah, doing a lot of research on genocide studies within Cambodia. And he was also in Buenos Aires, uh, attending a court session and he was so, yeah, uh, surprised by how, on the one hand, informal it was, but also how highly emotional <laughs> uh, the, the the events were. So I think uh, this is also where I think uh, formal, informal. So you kind of like you have to look it into context. And I think, and that's also what I try to do in my book to try to contextualize these emotions. Were in many literature on on transitional justice, we talk so much about revenge or. Uh, hatred or suffering but i do think what how people experience these feelings is is so context dependent and and, and also how people uh, give meaning to these feelings yeah we have to look into that also to better grapple with what these truth and justice practices are and what they're aiming at so um yeah it was important to tell these uh, testimonies in front of the state who committed these crimes of course and particular individuals who were part of the day of the torture, the day of the disappearance, the days of the killings. But at the same time, there were these unexpected or unintended consequences that the person could fall asleep or uh, was kind of like with gazes and looks trying to, to, to defy you or maybe may have you may, um, make mistakes in your testimony or maybe that would be... I would make it uh, unreliable. So on the one end, yes, there was a tension, but I'm not really sure if it was undivided. And it was also under quite some pressure. For some, it was, it was very difficult to, to, to be in the same room uh, with, with, with people who yeah, tortured you, for example. So, yeah, it's, 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 it was both, I guess. It was... Um, a very important experience, but at the same time, also it could not. It could also, yeah, result in something uh, unexpected, and in some cases, uh, yeah, re-traumatic. Perhaps not saying that they didn't want to have that experience, but still, yeah, uh, not an easy one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, during your field research in Argentina, uh, can you talk a bit? about who you spoke to, how they were chosen for your research, uh, why you spoke to them, or what you hope to learn from them, and also maybe add whether you expected um, such strong feelings and emotions to be present. 
Yeah. Well, I think that the only thing that was really important from the very beginning was I want to, what they say in Argentina, hear both bells, ambas campanas, so implying that I wanted really to hear the stories of the victims, but also those of the perpetrators. But I also interviewed and talked to many judges and human rights lawyers and defense lawyers, um, other people working at the courts, people from security, uh, a lot of therapists, psych- uh, psychologists were also involved in the, in, the, in the trials proceedings. And I talked a lot with the children of the perpetrators and their wives and, and uh, relatives of the disappeared. So it was kind of a, yeah, a very heterogeneous group. <laughs> I think in total there were like 200 persons that were kind of directly or indirectly involved to the trials and the violence. And I used the, well, the, the snowball method, friends and then friends and then friends, which was quite an easy method to, to get in touch. People were quite willing to talk. Also, the, some of the, the indicted officers, I, I got access to a military prison. And from there, I yeah, had like 20, 30 uh, indicted officers. Some of them were already convicted. I could also talk various times to uh, ex-General Fidela. He was also in that prison. And he was not that willing to talk with me. But yeah, we had some interesting conversations that I write about in the book as well. And um, yeah, what did I want to know? I wanted to know, first of all, uh, how they define justice, how they yeah, give meaning to it, how they understood the past and what these trials were and why they were important. And I, from the first day, I understood, okay, this is a very ideological struggle still and it will be very difficult to have one clear idea what what this past is and, and how these trials will be judged uh, now and in the future. And... Um, yeah, these emotions, as I already said at the beginning, I think it, it was not really in my mind when I went for the first time. But um, when I was at, yeah, during the first verdict, it was, it, it was so in the face and I was just sitting there in, in the public gallery and seeing all these different yeah, emotions of people and also uh, on the one hand a very reserved group of officers that were kind of like, swallowing their uh, life sentences and on the other hand a very yeah emotionally <laughs> touched a group of victims who were finally getting a sense of justice but that was also a partial justice because some of the perpetrators were being acquitted so it was a very a very emotionally dense moment and that was really okay this is what I want to focus upon but I do remember having some conversations with uh, judges and I was trying to figure out what their emotional experience was of the trials. And <laughs> sometimes I thought maybe I'm looking for something which is not there. I don't know. But um, <laughs> that's also perhaps uh, the bias of each researcher. So I also tried to, to back off and just go with the flow. I think that's what anthropologists also do. Sometimes we have a perfect interview and then we just, after five minutes, you throw it in uh, in the in the pin <laughs> you throw it away and just keep talking what people want to talk about and uh, that's what i think is also well helps you to not yeah frame too much the research into a direction that you think uh, uh, the topic is about but you really allow you uh, and the people that you try to understand uh, give voice there so yeah it was um uh it was a big struggle to get all these voices into a kind of yeah a coherent 
story and to write a book about it. But um, I'm, I, th- I do think I'm, uh, I managed. <laughs> I'm happy with the result. <laughs> I think so yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Eva, in speaking with uh, those survivors and perpetrators, did you learn anything maybe unexpected, such as a sense of understanding about what happened from survivors or uh, remorse from perpetrators? Um, no. <laughs> no, none of no, none of them. No, there was not so much. Well, there was one thing which I think is interesting to, to what I did notice was one. Uh, I was able to be. In close contact with one of uh, well, he was a guerrilla member of one of the the biggest uh, guerrilla armed guerrilla group, and he was in a sense kind of understanding towards uh, military on trial. He really felt it was not very just that only them and they were being uh, prosecuted. I mean, he once said, "I have blood on my hands too," but because it was not, I was not part of the state. I cannot be prosecuted anymore. But these men, uh, yeah, did horrible crimes, but um, not all of them, uh, well, should be punished for it. Some something like that, which was, but that was quite remarkable. And in a sense, he was also well aware that it was it was not something to to to. It was not easy to voice this in public. Uh, there was little understanding. Uh, I think from the part of the victims towards the perpetrators, which is of course logical if you see what what yeah what the violence has done to 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 the lives of these people and also their children it's it's, it's massive of course um and in turn of terms of remorse um no and and i write a lot about remorse because if you read um transitional justice and Genocide. Uh, there is this enormous urge uh, from victims and societies as large, at least in the literature, that we want them to be remorseful. <laughs> kind of like that's something that we really need to be able to to, to move forward. And uh, we don't see it that much remorse, particularly in Argentina. It's not so much there. And I try to, like, what I, I write in a chapter, what I call disgrace, and it's what I say. But I think it's very important to understand how, how the military are experiencing uh, the past and also the present uh, trials as a form of disgrace, as a form of shame. They, they really like untie the idea of accountability and, and, and wrongdoing. So they, it's, it's more kind of a wrong being. <laughs> they, in private conversations, they, uh, yes, they did admit that terrible crimes were committed and they really did not comply with their, in their imagination, very high standards of being a military. And, um, but it was not that they felt guilty for it or accountable for it because they have this idea of, yeah, and then comes the whole idea, order is an order, befail is befail. And in the Holocaust literature, which outrages so many people, which of course is also very imaginable. But, um, I kind of like try to show also that it's such a dead end in a sense, to, to wish for remorse because it's very often kind of emotionally not possible for the perpetrators who are kind of part of this enormous network of, 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 of state-executed violence. It was such, yeah, they, they kind of like un, undo 
uh, accountability from, for, for, yeah, they put it on, 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 on the hierarchy, the, 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 the leaders who ordered wrongly. And I, I also kind of like pushed it, but if you receive an immoral order, then what? But they say, no, at the moment it wasn't an immoral order. It turned to be immoral afterwards. But it's a kind of a very, they, they feel very shameful in a sense, but not accountable. So expressing remorse, and I write about it also, would be an act of betrayal. And I, I, I write in one of the, the beginnings of, of a section that uh, the former dictator, General Videla, the closing words of one of the trials in, in Córdoba, um, is kind of congratulating all his uh, inferiors for uh, being such a good soldiers and keeping up morale and really trying to show what the violence was and why they uh, what did what they did. And then a kind of like, but he says, except one sergeant. And that was uh, the one who, one of the very few, it's not, it's not the only one, but it did happen more. But he uh, expressed remorse and he really asked for forgiveness. And then he did that, which is so much urged for by victims and society at large, but he was being punished from his own people at right away so it also really doesn't help i guess to 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 create yeah space for remorse within uh, within the perpetrators so and then understanding from the perpetrators towers the victims i think the whole idea of of the pain of the mother who has a disappeared uh, child or a disappeared grandchild was all very understanding they understood which was terrible but they always tried to, try to explain and justify that in every war people disappear and females are suffering kind of this kind of masculine conservative understanding of the suffering woman perhaps um, but there was also less understanding because of yeah the political uh, play of the trials and they say they were kind of like continue opening the wounds and they're making it worse by again and again and again mentioning it and they're creating creating more hatred and, and, and less harmony in society so kind of like it cut both ways the, the thing on understanding on the one hand the, the the eternal suffering mother was something that they shared and they understood that, that this was kind of like that needed a certain form of justice but how it was being done was really well unforgiving in their in their perspective from the military yeah and that connects in some ways to something you mentioned earlier about reliving uh the trauma uh through these you know formal proceedings and so i wonder were there any ethical concerns in conducting your research were there safety security concerns for you personally and for the individuals you spoke to and how did you go about alleviating these concerns yeah well of course, if you study such sensitive topics on violence, it, 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 you have to think about ethics on and, and how to protect your your informants to a certain extent, to what is possible. Um, but as I said, it, it was not that I was the only one talking about these topics. It was uh, me, the trial, other uh, therapists. It was kind of like we were all talking about these topics. So in that sense, I didn't feel that I was generating certain re-traumatizing situations because I was talking about this this past it was quite common in a sense to talk about it and I also learned that re-traumatization is not per se something yeah it's kind of strange now but it's terrible at the same time it, it's also 
very yeah, important and significant experiences that, that, that should be reflected upon again. So it was kind of, I became part of this ongoing reflection that we shared. What did concern me was more um, engaging with perpetrators and being faithful to their story without justifying the violence. I think that that still was and still is one of, one of my, 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 my ethical dilemmas. How, how can I write about them and, 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 and show to the world how they understand the past and the present and how what justice is to them without yeah, justifying these horrific crimes? I think that, that, that was yeah, kind of complicated. And other forms of ethical dilemmas, no, I didn't really have. It was really how, um, how am I going to write about this without, yeah, becoming morally blind or kind of turning these crimes into something, well, it happens or it's collateral damage, how many of these perpetrators talk about it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, all the people were adults and they gave consent to participate and the court hearings were public and also I did inform the tribunals, okay, I'm from the Netherlands and I'm here to to study the trial. Oh, yeah, great. I wasn't really the only one. (laughs) Two other anthropologists that are colleagues of mine were also studying the trial. So, yeah, it was quite, quite, uh, in that sense, it was, uh, yeah, perhaps from a distance, it, it, it seemed more difficult than it eventually was to do the research, I guess. Yeah. Thinking a little bit uh, about the big picture, uh, what did you learn from your research about understanding historical violence and seeking to resolve it in the present? Well, what did I learn? I think for now 10 years working on it and thinking about <laughs> it. Yeah, for me, what I really, really start to understand is that the violence was much more of, of a desire or an objective than something that can be fully accomplished and it can have an end or something. It really is, is not how justice is, 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 is coming about. And then these parts of injustices and unanswered sufferings that, that will always remain, I think that was something really important to come, to, to realize, I guess. And... Um, and this is something I also write uh, in, in my conclusions that um, the trials, like any other truth or justice practice, uh, it kind of implicitly would involve this movement away from violence and suffering. And I think that's a very wrong conception, at least for Argentina. I, I came to understand these practices, the trials and all these other truth to justice and memory practices rather as a, as a way to keep the suffering and the violence in the ongoing presence, uh, to be around the victims and the suffering and, and disappeared um, every day. And that's why I also, I didn't like transitional justice from the beginning, but I also came to understand on a more profound level that it's very unsuitable uh, to the context of Argentina. And as I already said, in Argentina themselves, they don't really like uh, transitional justice as a term either to, to make sense of their reality. And that also, as I started to doubt what is transitional justice, where does it come from? And transitional comes in a sense from the Latin word transire, and that means also moving away from one state to the other. And, and I think it's, it's these practices in Argentina, it's not, they don't aim at moving away from the violence. It's, it's, it's kind of rather the opposite, I would say. Yeah, I think that's, that's the most important thing that I learned. And perhaps that a much more open idea of what justice is, this idea that it's something... It's kind of an open horizon. It's something that you always have to work for, but you will never, never accomplish it. It's kind of this oasis. I don't know. I think that that's very important. Yeah. 
And then that, you know, reminds me of uh, a quote that you included in uh, chapter three from uh, Laura Figueroa, that is, quote, justice is not about the outcome, it is about the process. Uh, how was this ap- applicable to your research, as well as the significance or a- insignificance of verdicts for the five military officers? Additionally, what might this tell us about the utility of, uh, you know, retributive justice proceedings as compared to uh, more com- comprehensive approaches to justice in the aftermath of crimes against humanity and genocide? You no, know, I think it is very important to do the process, as I said, is particularly for the victims being able to to. to yeah, to, to give testimony in front of the perpetrators, in front of the state, being heard, it, it's very important. Um, and, and Laura, exactly, she, she quoted, she, she verbalized very well. You know, it's about the process. And it's also um, keeping in mind acquittals were still a possibility. So even if the verdict was not uh, the desired outcome, they would still have that process. And also this process did not end after the verdict, more trials would come, other truth and justice uh, practices will continue. So, yes, I think this, this focus on process, it, it fits very well my idea of nominal justice. And, and of course, and this is also, I think, what anthropologists should do, our approaches and, 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 and theorizing should derive from the people that we try to understand. And, 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 and yes, Laura and all the others, I think, very yeah, influential in that sense to make sense of what was going on there. Um, and I think uh, another colleague of mine, Noah Weisman, she also I really like how she phrases it because it's always justice to come, something to come. So what then to make of the trial? What's its utility? Yeah, I think we perhaps we still have kind of like make it bigger than perhaps what it is, but it's not less important though. I think if the trials would not have been made possible in Argentina, I do think um, uh, they would have continued struggling for it. So it also shows how important this this, this, this legal trial is, this retribution. But it's not total. It's it's a part of this enormous field of of, of practices and and processes that that deal with the past. And and again, that's, that's something ongoing that is not ended with one or two verdicts. Um, well, we're, we're coming near to the end here, but, you know, this is the uh, New Books and Genocide Studies, uh, you know, network. And, uh, you know, your book was published in uh, the Rutgers Genocide, Political Violence and Human Rights series. Uh, I, I'm curious, did you find, I mean, I've seen in my own, you know, look at genocide studies literature, there's been some increase in framing, um, you know, the crimes committed in Argentina as genocide. Uh, did you find this term used by Argentinians in your research? And how far do you think the term uh, applies? Yeah, it is in the Argentinian context. Uh, well, I would say a bit controversial. Uh, although the violence was targeted at one specific group, but that was based on ideological and political convictions and therefore membership was very undetermined. And you also saw that in how randomly people were being kidnapped and tortured and killed. That were not only armed left-wing guerrillas, um, but genocide is being used among relatives of victims and also certain scholars to underline the horror of the crimes and its systematic nature. Um, there is this whole local adaptation of El Genocida, the genocider, to kind of rename the perpetrators to really emphasize uh, the cruelties of the crimes that they committed. And um, kind of like 
left it aside to to say this is genocide or not. As an anthropologist, again, I what I did, I employed genocide in my my, my work when people themselves used it to to make sense of their experiences or to make sense of people in, in, in like it's a genocider. So yeah, and I think other colleagues have written that that genocide is now becoming more and more important in, in Argentina kind of like to keep it to keep its 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 urge in the present because it's 40 years ago and to keep to keep it important perhaps these terms can help. I don't know if that's that's how it works. I don't know. I also think Argentina is exposed to other countries and, and other uh, state crimes uh, and then how it's being dealt and how it's being named. So I think it's also yeah, more the transnational dimension in, in how these these terms and concepts and practices travel. Um, but I, I don't use it um, to... Def- I, I speak of state violence and, and crimes against humanity because that's how it's... Um, being phrased on the courts in Argentina. Thank you. Well, as we come to a close, uh, and as your book comes to a close, uh, you wrote, quote, the question of the universality of experience has long bothered anthropologists. By blending social philosophy and ethnography, anthropology has widely contributed to the existential question of what it means to be human. I very much welcome the recent turn to phenomenology and the life world in anthropology. You go on to say, I see various potentials for, for phenomenological anthropology and rethinking contemporary and future conflicts, injustices, and their aftermaths in their multiple and unexpected forms. Can you close us out by talking a bit about this potential? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think phenomenological anthropology or existential anthropology is a subdiscipline that I think is very eminent in redirecting research in anthropology and, and, and broader the social sciences because it provides very well uh, yeah, good ground to be faithful to what's actually going on there, uh, what we always call grounded theory, instead of like implanting these unconsciously or sometimes consciously prior schemes on this messiness of real life and then all the consequences that it has, that we often miss out on how people make unexpected connections between things. Um, which, for example, this whole idea of justice and trauma without an end, I think... Uh, it's very important that particularly social scientists that work in these high-stake environments and violent environments sometimes kind of take a few analytical steps back, I think, and, and bracket about their own assumptions and taking for grantedness. And I think phenomenological anthropology is, uh, is yeah, allows you to do so. And then, for example, to give an example, I learned from the military that, that violence always takes different forms in combat. Uh, and it's always different than previous wars. So they, they always told me we, we were not prepared for the guerrilla warfare in cities and the ambushes in the mountains. We, we had the doctrine of uh, well, the in- independence wars and, and open fields and infantry against infantry. And I think this idea of that their doctrine is always kind of like lacking behind. I think that w- works also for our concepts and theories to analyze or explain violence. We're always intrinsically falling behind. and. Um, we look at the world now, I think the theater of war is again different. It's very different than, than the 70s. Um, for like two decades, three, four decades, we're sending mostly global South peacekeepers to implement or maintain peace instead of like performing war. You see also now whole countries or governments becoming under virtual attack. Drones are now bombing civilians or 
also perhaps less violent at first sight, but all the economic sanctions and embargoes, I think it's also forms of, of kind of new forms of war and violence that, that we also need to adjust our, our, uh, yeah, our gaze, perhaps. And I think it's, it's key. It's a key scientific task to keep questioning anew and anew and anew how people themselves live within these circumstances without framing it beforehand with concepts and theories that arise out of previous um, uh, yeah, violent situations. So that's why I, I think uh, is bracketing what I think is so central to phenomenological anthropology, our own assumptions and our own concepts is, uh, is, is very important. And you see... Um, Phenomenological anthropology, as it has been critiqued for being uh, too little aware of structural inequalities and, and the bigger picture, I think it's it's a challenge. To, if you use such a lens on on, on, on on new violences, I think it's yeah. This is where you have to try to see how it connects to these long-standing structural inequalities and and, and, and perhaps transnational power plays going on and still looking at how people live within these well within these um new forms of violence and this is also a little bit what i'm trying to do now in new research in venezuela i'm kind of like returning uh 20 years back i've always been keeping an eye on what's going on there of course still people that i know live there and um I, I sometimes wonder: Is the humanitarian crisis, as I said, it's a disastrous economic political mismanagement, or are there other underlying practices and beliefs that are also causing this enormous exodus and, and, and enormous violent situation for, for so many million Venezuelans? And um, I think again, a grounded theory going in without already ideas where I should focus upon is, 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 is very worthwhile. And I did two field trips already last year into the borderlands and to Caracas and this intertwinement of kind of, yeah, local, I call it viveza, kind of local entrepreneurship and then forms of survival really triggered my, uh, my, uh, my interest. And I think this whole yeah, idea when does something become illegal and when is something moral immoral? I think that's it's very it's an interesting field to study, and uh, I hope to be able to continue on um, on this in the future. <laughs> but uh, time will tell. Yeah. Thank you, Eva, for a very interesting conversation. Is this new research on Venezuela for another book project? Well, I definitely hope to write another book somewhere in the future. <laughs> I, uh, I I find it very rewarding. It's not an easy one, but I do think that art. Well, sometimes articles work for for maybe you have a very clear idea, but I do think a book allows you to to provide more synthesis between topics and and give you room to really reflect and allow stories to uh, to grow and develop throughout the book. So yes, I definitely would. Uh, I have plans to write a book on, on, on Venezuela, but I'm at the very, very beginning returning. So I first need to do quite some field work, interviews, go back, and, and then hopefully in a few years uh, publish again a beautiful book. But um, yeah, time, uh, time will tell, but I really <laughs> hope so. Yeah. Great. Well, we will definitely have to do this again when your book does come out. Uh, Eva, thanks. Uh, so much for joining me again. Uh, I really appreciated your time or appreciate your time and uh, uh, take care. Thank you.
Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.